We are in Titus, Titus chapter 1. I'll read verses 5 through 9. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to uh, guide our minds to have your Holy Spirit uh, guide our hearts and our thoughts uh, to uh, understand and accept what it is that you're teaching through this. We ask you to bless this time now to your glory and praise in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we began this series and we gave a brief background on Titus himself, who he was, uh, what his involvement with Paul had been up to this point. We covered this letter, where it kind of fit in timing, when it is that it's likely that Paul wrote it, why he wrote it, uh, from where to where he wrote it. And then Crete, uh, just what they had been doing there, the different ideas as to when this might have occurred, where uh, Paul and Titus were on Crete forming churches and then Paul having to leave. We ended with verse 5 and we focused on that two-part following orders, uh, appointing elders in the cities, setting in order the things that are lacking. Paul had told Titus to do two things in Crete. The setting in order, uh, I'd covered five things that will actually develop over the next few weeks, and they were first to rebuke, to set in uh, essentially rebuke those that were already opposing the church from within, most likely. Uh, then also, it was the teaching of duty and character to the people in the church uh, to model good works for them. Uh, good works was an emphasis to the Cretans because they had a reputation for being selfish. And then the last was to deal with divisive people, to make an example, to set a strong uh, tone that such... Uh, insubordination would not be tolerated. And then he was to appoint elders in every city. We talked about how that was not just Titus making his will uh, uh, prevalent in each of the churches, but to actually determine it through this uh, process that in classical Greek is referred to as the raising of hands, this, this appointment as the raising of hands. Um, he was to ensure that elders were appointed by a process that he might have uh, had described to him because Paul says at the end of verse 5, in every city as I commanded you. So perhaps that refers to additional details that he had given him that he doesn't get into here. One of the things that I didn't mention last week that I wanted to mention now is that ordain is what we do with officers in our churches. We ordain them into their office of elder or deacon. And the root for the word ordain is kind of similar to the root for the word of this to put in order. And so this uh, that Paul is commanding Titus to do, to put in order, is also an aspect of that, why that ordination is the process by which we're doing it. Bringing these men into positions of formal responsibility before God 
and his, to guide and lead his church. Now, before we get into the specifics of the character of an elder here, I want to just talk about this term. The term elders is kind of common in culture. It's common in the Bible. Um, it may be that there are, it's a loaded term that people might have a certain understanding of it that isn't biblical, but it is a broad term. So I just wanted to introduce it biblically. So what it is that we would have by this time thought about this word elders. The first occurrence is in the last chapter of Genesis, verse seven. So Joseph went up to bury his father and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house and all the elders of the land of Egypt. So all the elders of the land of Egypt went all the way up to Israel to bury uh, Joseph's father. And so that really shows you just how uh, just incredibly um, powerful and, uh, and uh, instrumental in leading the Egyptians into, into a life had been. All of the elders of Egypt went up in order to do this. And so this introduces the first term elders and it's referring to Egyptians, not the Israelites. The next occurrence is in Numbers 22.7. So the elders of Moab, well, I can't really say the next occurrence, another occurrence referring to a people other than Israel. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed from the diviners, uh, departed with the diviners fee in their hand, and they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. And so in Numbers 22, that's where we have the donkey speak and rebuke Balaam. And there we are brought into this term also, elders of Moab, elders of Midian. So this is becoming obviously a common term that you're seeing, that these are leaders of these peoples. Now, Exodus 4.29 is where we see it in conjunction with the Israelites, the first occurrence, and this is down in Egypt. Uh, Moses is down there, and they're about to go to Pharaoh to rescue his people, but first, God has him go to the elders of the Israelites. Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And so these are all the elders of the children of Israel. It's probably a lot of men. Now, in the Old Testament, you see the term elders. It's kind of common. You'll see it referred to as all the elders, sometimes some of the elders. And then you get into this precise number that is often referenced in the Old Testament. And it's when the load is too great to bear for Moses, and God tells him to appoint 70 men to assist you in this work. And then these men, the Holy Spirit falls upon them, and they are then empowered to minister with Moses. So examples of all elders is there in Exodus 4.29 that I read to you. They were to all appear before Moses and Aaron. Again in 12, verse 21, 18, verse 12. Some, some elders, is referred to in Exodus, Exodus 17, verse five. But then, as we get beyond the giving of the law, we see that the term 70 starts coming into regular use. So now there are these 70 that have been formally made elders to be the elders that represent all of the people of Israel. As you proceed through the Old Testament, and as you enter into the New Testament, you begin to see elders used in a negative connotation. By the time you hit the Gospels, elders is only used in a negative connotation. It, the phrase is elders, chief priests, and scribes. 
Now, obviously, it isn't, though, that the roles have changed. It isn't that God is upset with how this has been defined. No, it's that they have twisted and made the role of elder aberrant, just as they did the other roles. They were all now meant to serve the people as to serve God. So in the Gospels, you see the term elders often used in conjunction with chief priests and scribes and always in a negative sense. In Acts, you see it used about 20 times. All the early uses are this negative uses. All the late uses are the negative uses. But in the middle, from like Acts 11 to 21, you have all the references of elders as being the positive ones arising from the Christian community. There are nine references to the Jewish elders as bookends, and then there are 10 references to the Christian elders in the middle. From 1 Timothy to 1 Peter, you see only seven references to elders. And I'm speaking plural. There, there are other uses of the term elder, but I'm just speaking of the plural elders. And then in Revelation, you have the how many elders before the throne. We've just begun uh, hearing uh, Phil preach about that. It's the 24 elders. And so you have these mysterious beasts, uh, uh, you know, that, that they, that they appear to us as beasts, but yet they're always appearing before God. They're, they're just these amazing creatures. And then you have these 24 elders that are always blessing God, falling before his throne, casting their crowns. So this kind of gives you just a, a summary view of where the term elders is used in scripture and why it's used. I want to dig into the ones where we're referring to the elders that are arising, this new term, it's an old word, but kind of uh, ascribed to these new uh, people that are coming up in the Christian church. They're not, they might, some are obviously probably came over from Judaism, but yet some are obviously new as well. So I want to begin at Acts 11, verse 27. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. So they have gone north to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders. They sent it to the elders in Jerusalem by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So now here you see that elders are introduced in, the, in this New Testament term, elders, and what are they doing? They are uh, managing this ministry of famine relief in Jerusalem, and they're also uh, handling this, these gifts that are coming in. So they're in positions of trust, and that's what I wanted to emphasize. They're managing money, they're managing these ministries. So let's move ahead to Acts 15. Acts 15, starting at verse 1, and we'll stay in 15 for a little bit. And certain men came down from Judea, and we're still in Antioch, and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come up to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. Uh, Phil preached through Acts years ago 
and I'm sure he covered this in great detail, much more than I'll cover now, but I want to hint at a few of these things that are mentioned here. Now, in Acts 15, we have the original general assembly of the church. It's what we still call the general assembly in the Presbyterian denomination. This is the seminal general assembly. And look at what we have here in verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia, describing the conversion. Oh, and, and verse 4. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. So they were received. This uh, deputation of the Antioch church is received by this church in Jerusalem. And the church, the apostles, and the elders all received them. And then Paul and Barnabas had, give, had given mission reports all along the way. And when they arrive in Jerusalem, they give another missions report. So let me start in at verse 5 again. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up. Now they're before, they're, they're making their testament here in Jerusalem. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. Now, apostles and elders, who are we missing? The church. Again, the elders are now representative of the people that had welcomed this deputation from Antioch. You've got the church that isn't referenced. It's the apostles and the elders that are coming together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them. So now there's been much dispute. The elders and the apostles are debating this thing. What exactly are we to require of the Gentiles? What parts of the law apply? What parts don't? Any of it? None of it? What are we going to do? So they're arguing a lot here. And it appears to me that the bulk of the church has been excused from this. And if any of you have attended a presbytery, you'll know that that happens at presbytery. The elders are talking, and at times they excuse everyone to debate a matter, such that they can be very candid in their discussions with the other elders without having the church perhaps be privy to that, the broader church, especially when some private matter is coming up. Here, we don't know. The church, some of them may have been involved. They might not have been gone into what's called executive session, but we just don't know. But what I wanted to just illustrate, though, is that there is order here, and it, and it appeared very early. People regard the early church as uh, nascent and, and, and not uh, formed and not formal. No, no, no. We see a lot of formality developing very quickly. So Peter speaks, Paul speaks, Barnabas speaks, James speaks in summation of what has happened. Some say that James perhaps was the moderator here because he's speaking kind of for the body in uh, summing up what it is that they've decided. So they craft a letter they send it back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, and they send their own deputation from Jerusalem along with them, Judas and Silas, to guarantee that, they, that that church knows we're taking this seriously. We're taking this matter that's come up in Antioch very seriously. And we know Jerusalem would still be filled with lots and lots of Jews, but Antioch is rapidly filling up with lots of believing Gentiles. And thus this dispute is arising, this kind of inequity between the, the ethnic makeup of the churches. Now I'm going to flip to Acts 16, starting at verse 1. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra. We're talking about Paul on his mission trip. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. 
He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek, but his mother was Jewish. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. So we see the elders involved back in Jerusalem in this decision-making concerning these things that have arisen and then disseminating the information throughout the then known churches or through what we now would call presbyteries. Let me flip to Acts 20. I'll start reading at verse 17. From Miletus, again, we're talking about Paul. This is on his third missionary journey. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them. So now he is about to bypass them. He's wanting to get back to Jerusalem quickly, and he can't afford the time to go into Ephesus. So he calls them to come about 10 miles to join him. And who does he have come? The elders. Because the elders are representative of that entire Ephesus body of believers. Again, this representative nature of the eldership, just like the 70 that we talked about from the Old Testament. They're representing the body there. And now let me flip ahead to verse 27. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after, met, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. It is the Holy Spirit that is said here to have made these men elders. So we're not talking about just the man. Remember last week we talked about the man expressing desire to be an elder. It is a good thing that a man wants to be an elder. But now we've got the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church. So now we've got the Holy Spirit in it. And, and then we talked last time about how there is this appointment, this election by the people. And so the people must be the ones that are vetting these men into this office. So see, you've got, not only do you not have Titus appointing and just dictating this, You've got the Holy Spirit involved. The man has to want to do it. The church has to want him to, to be in that position to do it. So you've got this call of God upon this man's life. The church recognizes it. The man recognizes it. The Holy Spirit anoints him into that role. There is, however, some real sad text in what I've read. The elders do a lot. What I've read through, the elder manages money, they manage ministries, they, they uh, dispute the doctrinal, they handle the doctrinal disputes. They go out and they disseminate that information. They're responsible for the souls of these people in these churches. But Paul said that savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among yourselves men will rise up. So amongst the elders, there will rise up men who become savage wolves and rip, and, and rip at the sheep. So that's sad, but yet it's also reflective of the Old Testament. The same thing happened there. That's why the negative connotation of elder I wanted to bring up with you. It's so common. Elders, chief priests, scribes, it's like they're all evil. 
by the time you get to the Gospels. And Jesus is constantly rebuking them, constantly telling them they're not doing what's right. And they don't want to hear that. And so they kill him. So see, just because we're elders doesn't mean we're always going to do what's right. So there's this tendency for us to be frail humans. And that's why the elders have to hold one another accountable. Paul is telling them that from their own midst, these savage wolves will arise. And so we must hold one another accountable as elders. If we're not doing that, then we're not doing our jobs. We have no right to hold people accountable within churches if we're not holding one another accountable at these meetings we go to. And that's difficult. Those of you know, many of you engaged in the social media and this huge thing that's blown up in recent years about the, the dictatorial power of the police in our culture. There's just this fomenting discussion about people saying police have too much power, they have arrogated it under themselves, they don't respect the sovereignty of the people. And then you've got the other side that are just pro-police, supporting them, defending them. The problem that this, the reason this has come about is police are failing to hold one another accountable. They're in the club. I'm in the club now. I'm safe. I'm a made man. As long as the police forces continue to do that and not be open and transparent and hold one another accountable, then we're going to have that continue to foment until it just destroys us. But the church is the same way. The church is a very mirror reflection of what's going on in our culture with the police forces. I'm not saying, and I know there's debate, you know, amongst, especially among Reconstructionists about just to what extent we should have police forces. Where's Josh? <laughs> he, oh, he's away this weekend, that's right. Oh, good, this is perfect time. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but still, though, there is a tremendous parallel here uh, with people arrogating power unto themselves. So now, I want to get to my text. You thought I'd never get to verse 6. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. You can see this continued from verse 5. Appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. This appears to be a summary qualification for the office of elder, because then some of it's going to be repeated as it goes on to verse 7. So first, from this one verse, we know that an elder is to be a man. And yet much of the church today rejects that limitation. If they reject that, then they can reject anything they want. I mean, that's as clear as day. Uh, I know I have mentioned this to you once before, but uh, it was Mark Twain who said, if I can believe the first verse of the Bible, I can believe the whole thing. But we know he didn't believe the first verse of the Bible, and he didn't believe the whole thing. So why is it that people who call themselves Christians, who do believe the first verse of the Bible, can just pick and choose the rest that they want to believe or not believe? It's not right. It's not orthodox. And those people will have to answer to God for that. Some of them probably not saved. Some of them probably are saved, but they're treating God's word poorly. Man, if a man is blameless, now blameless cannot mean sinless, else there would be no elders, male or female. 
but they must be highly regarded. They must be highly regarded. That's what it means to be blameless. In other words, you are above reproach. People trust you. People, they don't necessarily like you, but they respect you. They have, they have respect for your integrity. And so that is what it means to be blameless, not sinless, but having high regard with the people, being above reproach. Married. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife. Now, when you read the commentaries, many excuse and say that's only if you're married, but they allow single men. And we really don't see it that way. Uh, an elder ought to be married, or at least to have been married, as we know Paul, to have been married at one point in his ministry, not later. He doesn't remarry to have a wife in the mission field. He chooses to remain without. But yet, the marriage is really a crucible in which elders are made, or at least they are revealed. Because if anything is going to reflect your poor character, it's in your marriage. And your wife should tell people, don't make him an elder, in all honesty. You know, you don't want your wife gossiping, but yet your wife has to stand for you if she thinks you're worthy of being an elder. And not as a symbol of respect for her home. Oh, I want my husband to be an elder, even if he is a jerk. No, no. Her, her enthusiasm, her support of you should be genuine, should be biblical, should be based on your true character. And you have a true character that nearly no one else on earth knows but your wife and your children. And that gets to the other thing about being a father. So married, must be married, faithful, one woman man, and a father. And as a father, must have his children in subjection to him in the home. And so again, must be married, must have children. It's the crucible of training for any elder. I know many people would oppose that, but we've seen in our culture so many failures because of bringing men into the eldership that don't meet those requirements and they're really not fit to lead a church. The whole Roman Catholic Church is predicated on that practice and I think we've seen how well that's gone for them in the last 10 or 20 years. It's costing them a lot of money to buy off all these people that have been abused by priests in positions of trust and responsibility that are taking it out on their flocks. So I don't want to, you know, well, I've already abused the Roman Catholic Church too, too late, but it's just, I know there are many good men, many good people, but yet they have a flawed system that's unbiblical, and that's what we must oppose. An elder must be above reproach as God's steward. Uh, earlier in our bulletin, actually, we, during the... Uh, during the reading on confession, the very first phrase under that was, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That was from 1 Corinthians 4. And I want to turn to that and read that whole portion because it really does apply here. I'll start reading from verse uh, 3, the end, uh, the end of chapter 3. You are Christ, that verse 23, you are Christ and Christ is God's. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. The steward must be faithful. As a steward, you're a steward in God's house. The steward of the house has a lot of power in that house. They represent the homeowner. They represent the owner of the house. And so that steward can typically take action with all things and all people in the house 
When you have, and I, and I know a long time ago, I talked about those different roles in like a wealthy, wealthy home, all those different people that have different titles, but yet there is one man that rules the house on the behest of the homeowners. And he only answers to the homeowner. And you see it in Genesis with Joseph and Potiphar when he's telling Potiphar's wife, I have control over everything here. The only thing I can't have is you. And so then he tries to run and he ends up going to prison because she took his coat and blamed him. So now an elder must not. I'm going to introduce maybe some additional terms in addition to what we see here. Um, because, uh, you know, the one word can be kind of uh, misleading or not fully formed. And so when another really good word was in the, either the ESV or the NIV, I brought it in as well. And so a, an elder or a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed. That's what the New King James says. In the uh, NIV or the EAS, it says, uh, ESV, it says arrogant. They must not be self-willed, they must not be arrogant. I'm gonna to speak to both of those terms. I am not surprised at all that this is the first, blameless of course being the first above reproach, but that this is the first one on the not list. Don't pick an elder that's like this. Arrogance. Let me give you just kind of a simple phrase of what an arrogant person would think. I alone am right. You must do it my way. You must convince me that my way is wrong if you don't want to do it my way. That's what an arrogant person does. And they're insufferable at times. And we don't want people like that to be elders in our churches. They're hard to work with. Self-willed. That is to confuse your desires with God's desires. Because I want it, God must want it. It's really to put yourself in the place of God being self-willed as opposed to uh, be dri being driven by God's will. An elder must relinquish his own desire at times. I can't tell you how many times I'm in a, in a meeting at Presbytery where I'm leaning one way, I'm thinking one way, and then someone says something, and I'm thinking, oh, that's interesting. And then you find yourself vacillating. Uh, that's why Gary has told me he doesn't like talking at the Presbyterian meetings because he's so busy thinking of what people have said. And it is at times difficult to both be thinking and be ready to talk because you don't want to, you know, open your mouth and prove yourself a fool, you know, like the phrase goes. And so you just sit there. And I know for a couple of years, I just sat there when we were in the PCA and I didn't want to say a word. I just thought, I'm going to embarrass Phil if I say anything. <laughs> but so an elder must relinquish his own desires at times. And that is wisdom. That's wisdom to do that. Uh, Paul was strong-willed. There's no way around that. He was very strong-willed, but he was not self-willed. His will, he aligned with God's will. And in the book of Acts, we have several examples where God overrode Paul's will, and then he would just immediately replan. So Paul was very responsive to changes in his plans brought about by God. Now, some will point to the fallout that he and Barnabas had over Mark. And yet, when you study it out, it appears that both Barnabas and Saul had reasonable reasons to either include or exclude Mark. And I don't think you can just point at Paul, as many do in their commentaries, and say, uh, Paul was wrong, he was sinful, he was pig-headed. No, I don't think you can say that. You don't see that in Scripture. That's what people are imputing into that. 
They had valid reasons to do what they were doing. And we know that then because God allowed it to fall out as it did, that God has a purpose in it too. And so he gave, and, and we know also that there was no falling out between Paul and Mark here. They were talking about doing ministry together later. Even at the time, it doesn't appear that there was a falling out. Again, you would impute that into scripture if you read that into there. So he was strong-willed, not self-willed. The next one, not quick-tempered. Now you can see this in two ways. Either way, it's still bad, but in one way you might think of it as somewhat justified. First, the negative way. When a person's pride is attacked, when a man is hurt, when his pride is hurt, uh, he can lash out, causing harm to other people. Now that seems very shallow. It reflects poor character. Agreed, agreed, agreed. There's also, though, another area in which men can exhibit quick temper, and yet it's arguable. You know, they're kind of coming under attack. It's unfair. They're being treated unjustly. But still, that's no excuse. The man of God, the elder, must be patient in dealing with such things. Even if it's totally unfair, even if these people are being very abusive, you must work through that response of anger that might, at one point in your unsanctified past, might have uh, immediately been how you'd have responded to it. The next one is given to wine or a drunkard. So given to wine or a drunkard. Well, we know wine, alcohol, uh, drugs, dulls our reason, decreases our inhibitions, and so we have to be very careful when we're using these things. Uh, you know, drugs, when they prescribe them, they tell you, you know, don't operate machinery if you're going to do this, don't take it before bed, that type of stuff. I remember uh, Phil just related that he took the wrong one when we were at Presbytery. He took the stuff that makes him go to sleep first thing in the morning. And so then he's struggling to stay awake through our, through our meetings down there. And then it explains some things. <laughs> so elders must bear up under the pressures of life. We can't, we can't tolerate elders or uh, you all can't tolerate having elders that have a quick temper because you're not gonna then one come talk to them, to tell them the truth, to risk poking the bear, as we say in our culture at work. So now violent, an elder must not be violent. Now, to me it seems odd that you have quick-tempered and then not given to wine and violent because you know quick temper and violent just go together so much. But I think there's a reason for this. Quick-tempered, given to wine, violent. Some people, when they're given to wine, it leads to violence. There are what are termed angry drunks. People respond to alcohol differently, and so this perhaps is being built atop the fact that if someone is given to wine and they're doing this, they could then be leading to this abusive way of treating people, uh, acting out of their temper, losing their inhibitions, fighting their way to get what it is they want their way done. Um, but violent people, also, in addition to fighting to get their way, also just destroy stuff. They don't even want, want their way. They don't even know what their way is. They don't have a plan. They just don't like your plan. They don't like anything you're doing, and so they want to destroy it. Uh, having ministered with some violent people through this role, actually, people outside of our church typically, but you can kind of begin to see insight into people's character and how they behave. And they choose 
They choose when and with whom to get violent. They're not idiots. They're not fools. They know exactly when they're letting loose. They've got it under control. They're choosing to let it go, though, at times. And that's totally inappropriate, especially for a man of God who wants to be active in leading the church. The last one under the elder must not be, an elder must not be greedy for money. Greedy for money, greedy for gain. Now, this one would seem obvious. Our culture, a fallen culture, thrives on power, wealth, celebrity, influence. And they do it typically without shame or impunity. They value these things. And they think everybody does. It's just assumed. We live in a culture now where celebrity is huge. I mean, to be a wealthy celebrity is what everybody wants, it seems. The world lusts after these without shame. And so good Christians can often be undermined by these types of things that just influence our culture so much, it seeps into us. And we begin behaving and acting and thinking in ways that are inconsistent with God and how he wants us to be selfless, sacrificial, frugal. And in many ways, the world pushes against that all the time. Also, another one here under greedy for money that should be considered is this aspect of showing favoritism. If you put a man into authority in a church who will then use that as a position of power to create more power and show favoritism to his friends, oh, now you're really asking for trouble. Same way when we have politicians put into power that abuse their authority in that way for their own personal gain. We just must oppose that. And yet, in many churches, in many denominations, they choose men. I mean, if you're a doctor, hey, boy, you know, you're halfway to becoming an elder, frankly, in some churches. I mean, you've got doctor before your name. Uh, no offense, John. No offense, Phil. Yeah, I mean, it's wonderful that we have doctors, and yet we, we must recognize that it has to be graded on these character and these character alone. We can't go with what the world has elevated. Now, verse 8. This is where we turn to the positives. An elder must be hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. So to be hospitable is more than just to have people in your home, although that's obviously a part of it. And it's nice that we have uh, a church that really does welcome people into their homes quite often. But also here, it goes beyond that. This is to aid people who really can't help you back, to be sacrificial, to want to help people, to want to reach out into community and aid others. This hospitality has to do with welcoming people into your lives, into your heart, that might be people that are difficult to, to talk to, difficult to, to present to you know, some members of your family. Uh, that is the type of hospitality we're talking about, where it becomes a personal inconvenience for you, but yet you don't think of it as that. It's just love. A lover of what is good. When you love something, you'll sacrifice for it naturally. It's just who you are. It's what you do. And so when you see men who love camping and hunting and fishing, they are sacrificing for that, and they're forcing their family to sacrifice for that all the time. Now, often the families adopt the loves of the husband and father. It just makes life much easier that way. He's going to insist it goes his way anyway, so why not get with the program? 
But so then you suddenly find yourself, though, consumed. All this time is being consumed. All this money is being consumed on these things, this way of life that you, being the wife or one of the children, might not have chosen yourself. But here you are in a godly home, but yet being consumed with things that you ought not be. And when you begin to look at Scripture, are they approachable? Can you talk to them about this? We feel our lives are out of balance. Oh, you do, do you? Well, see, again, we're talking about elders. Elders in these positions, they have to love what is good. And a lot, all, all these things aren't necessarily evil. They're just ways in which they prevent you from living out the good that God would have you to do. God is a master of understatement. And so we know, just in looking at the word good, that he's a master of understatement. You know, at creation, and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good, declared it very good. See, good, in God's estimation, was enough to sum up his act of creation. Jesus rejected the appellation good when the rich young ruler came to him and called him good. Now, of course, that ruler didn't know Jesus truly was good. He was just calling him good. So see, the reason I say that is God is the, is the one that determines what is good. Lover of what is good. He's defined that word, and he appears to love that word. And we ought no, not go beyond it. We don't define good and bad. God does. God declares what's good. God declares what's bad. Let's accept his definitions and live by them. The next one is sober-minded. Uh, a variant is to be self-controlled. And so a sober-minded person must see the truth. And they must act on the truth. They're not willing to look the other way. A sober-minded person, a self-controlled person, does not choose to ignore reality. They live reality. And they encourage everyone to live reality. They don't want us hiding from ourselves, hiding from the things. For instance, uh, sometimes it's wise. Uh, Jay Adams talks about uh, us forgiving one another implicitly. That anything that does not throw the uh, co love's covers off of our bodies is something that we can deal with. You know, we're not cold in the night shivering thinking about, oh, I've just been offended. But when love's covers are thrown off of us, off of a relationship that we have with someone, we're to address that. We're to fix that. And to be sober-minded, to be self-controlled are people that know intuitively that that's what God would have us to do. He doesn't want us living fake, shallow, meaningless lives. You're God's child. He wants you to live real lives such that you can be an example to the people who aren't, yet who admire that in you and want to live like that. Now, that doesn't mean you should be a jerk. You need to be tactful in ways that you mean to help people. But that's what God wants us being, sober-minded, self-controlled, but yet working our ways into people's lives such that we can be good influences on them. The next one is elders should be just, which means they should be upright. They should know what's right. They should do what's right. Now, knowing what's right means they must know God's word. They must always, always be reading his word, studying his word, basing their thinking on his word, as opposed to the word of man. And when they see error that's grievous, they always want to address it. They want to fix it. 
seeing sin, tolerating sin, and allowing it to build up is not the path that you should take if you uh, want to be an elder. You must deal with these issues, and you must obey. Uh, many elders will answer for their failure to act well in this instance of justice and uprightness. We have so many failures. Uh, you know, the Gospels are just filled with elders that were failing. These Jewish elders were just failing to do what it is that God wanted them to do. And the next one is holy. Now, a man can be considered blameless above reproach and yet really not be a holy man because he's just an ethical man. He's behaving well. He doesn't cheat people. But yet, I know personally people who are like this and don't know God. They don't obey his word. They're just very ethical people. That's the way they were raised. But yet, they've chosen not to serve God. To be holy is to be reverent, is to know that you're living under God's authority, loving it, worshiping him, serving him. And it's not to take ourselves overly serious, but it's to take God very serious. We don't want to be uh, so self-important. That's not what that's about. And I, can't, I do see Christians sometimes, I mentioned before out on Facebook, kind of spoiling people's fun, holding them accountable for little nitpicky definitions that apparently they have in their mind. I can't let you, oh, the Babylon Bee is great at that. See, they've, they've given me off now. I don't have to do that anymore. The Babylon Bee is out there correcting people's perceptions like that. Um, and so I'm thankful for that satire that can be used in this corrective way in, in our culture. So now the next one is self-controlled disciplined. Self-controlled came up again with the variant, but disciplined. The overarching trait at the beginning that we brought up was blameless. The, this elder is to be blameless. A man remains blameless by exercising self-control. Uh, there was a book that came out a year or two ago and it commented on how men in positions of great authority, great responsibility, great respect, just implode. They just, they just do things that are bizarre. And their whole, uh, look at Tiger Woods, what Tiger Woods was doing, for instance. Many of you probably don't even know him, but he was this incredibly famous golfer who was having affairs all over the place. I mean, he had multiple mistresses come forward. His whole life melted down. He got, his wife divorced him, of course, and yet he still hasn't come back. God took away his honor, took away his celebrity. Uh, he still has lots and lots of wealth, I'm sure. But yet, men can do this, who think they can get away, living this unethical life and buffering it from this public persona that they want to have. Your sin will find you out. Your sin will catch you out. It's only a matter of time. God holds us in his hand. He can reveal any of our sin at any instant in time. We cannot expect to hide from God in that regard. And so if, as an elder, you want to be considered blameless or as an elder prospect, you must, through discipline and self-control, maintain that blamelessness through your life. And Saul, for instance, you know, authority and power tend to change people. Authority and power changes everybody. We know that. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. I, I may have mentioned to you the... Uh, book I'd read, the uh, bio biography I'd read about Woodrow Wilson, you know, I'm sad to say that that man was a Presbyterian because I don't feel he reflects well on Presbyterians because he 
became very, very self-important throughout his administration, just becoming more and more obsessed with his own agenda, his own fame, his own uh, uh, destiny. Saul was a man of low reputation, but as he began being elevated, he quickly became a tyrant. His petty character came through. And so that is before you make a man an elder is what you must put him through. You must put him through something that tests his character, that will reveal significant character flaws. That's what you need to have before you place these men into positions of responsibility. So now the, the next verse, the last verse, holding fast the faithful word, this elder, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. Another word for that is remaining true to tradition. And this appears to be honoring a man remaining true to tradition. Theology tends to change, but it tends to change slowly. We have these new things come into vogue. Sometimes they're just inherently evil. It's just heresy. But other times, God advances the understanding of theology. And yet those early guys really get a lot of flack for what it is that they're saying. More so, though, they take flack for how they're saying it. If they're godly, if they're presenting these ideas in ways that are inviting criticism, inviting feedback, then they'll go a, long, a lot longer towards having them validated. Is this real? Is this good? Is this edifying to the church? Is it true? But see, Protestants have a long tradition of being rebellious. We rebelled against the Roman Catholic Church. We believe we were right in doing so, but yet the Roman Catholics regarded us as separatists, as violating God's trust and his law. It's kind of like the uh, North and the South at the time of the war, you know? The Roman Catholics regard the Protestants as the, the Southerners, the secessionists, the ones that escaped from, from the organization that they were too good to be a part of. And so you hear that spoken in contempt but yet the Roman Catholic Church at that time was apostate, going from bad to worse. Luther, Calvin, the other reformers broke with an arrogant church filled with arrogant, godless men who were attempting to run roughshod over everything, including the godly that were believing the word of God. So the Protestants chose to remain true to God and not to an errant church. In our day, we see very, very brilliant theologians. And yet sometimes, through their arrogance, through the way that they interact with others, their impact upon the other theologians is minimal. They're just too proud and arrogant. And they can't handle criticism. Back when I studied the Auburn Avenue issue like 10 years ago, that's what came out to me more than anything. There are the theological issues, but what I saw more manifested was the poor character of these brilliant men. Ad hominem attack after ad hominem attack, speaking with pompous arrogance. Now, that's not to say that I don't agree 
with Gary North's definition of arrogance that I just read in Tools of Dominion chapter one, and it's this. Bear in mind that the word arrogant usually means a confident assertion of something I don't approve of. And so I agree. But also, Proverbs 10:19 says, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. And Gary North has written many, many, many fat books that I think have at least some sin in them. And I think he would agree. At times, he can be very arrogant in his books. He thinks he has the right to do so. Time will perhaps tell whether that's true or not. But yet, all of us have a responsibility to interact tactfully with everybody. To the degree that we can control it, we ought to. And so we ought not be the ones to begin throwing out those barbs and sarcasm and cynicism, they have their place. I like where Paul says that they should go so far as to emasculate themselves. I mean, Paul indulged in some sarcasm in the Bible. God obviously tolerated it. God put it in his word. So our God also accepts some sarcasm. But you can't let it embitter you. That can't be what really is the prime definition of the man, to be just overly sarcastic, because that is a quick, quick road to bitterness. Anything goes wrong in the person's life, they go from having that sarcasm be ha 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 funny to just, whoa, they're in a dark place now, and that they ought not be there. An elder must be prepared to exhort and convict. That's this last verse. He must be able to exhort and convict those with sound doctrine. So exhort, convict. You're really talking about two different aspects of the same, the same words, the same sound doctrine. But with some, you're encouraging them. You're exhorting them. You're lifting them up. With others, though, you're stepping on their toes. What you're saying is true, but what you're saying is not well received by them. You are bringing conviction to these people, and they often don't like it. Now, if they are unorthodox, you're going to drive them out of the church. Praise God. Right? We want the church to be cleansed of heretics. We don't want them in our churches. Get out. Go form your own heretic, heretical Amen. church. But those that can be saved, though, as like embers in the fire, we want to save them. And yet you can't get to either of these by ignoring important issues. You must address them. And so we must choose to take at times head on. It's not always the best way. Sure, go at it by the oblique. I mean, try a variety of tactics to solve the problems, but solve them. We must solve them. And we'll get to that throughout the remainder of Titus. We'll see how Paul has uh, told Titus to do it and how we believe Titus most likely did do it. So Paul left Titus behind in Crete to establish leadership in the churches. He was to appoint, bring into these churches men of integrity who would serve God and not themselves. These elders were imperfect men. All elders are imperfect men. But ask yourselves these questions. Is this man dedicated to learning God's word? Is this man dedicated to applying God's word as he understands it? And will this man crucify his own desires and instead serve God and his church? Some men don't want to serve the church. They want to serve only God, but they must serve both. The church is God's bride. He wants us to serve this church. And one of the phrases that we have come to regard as our uh, like, uh, motto, perhaps, is it's not about perfection. It's about direction. 
And so you want men that are going in the right direction and they have enough of a track record to see what direction that is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word and we pray please have us to understand it and apply it, to not neglect it. We thank you, Lord, this is truth. And yet so many of your children in churches that truly believe uh, aren't attempting to really employ your word in their lives and in this culture. And so we pray, Father, we ask forgiveness for that. We pray that we would not be party to that, but that we would seek to live out the faith, to honor you in our churches, uh, to rule by the uh, truth of your word, and to uh, serve you faithfully with the breath and life that we have. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness. We ask your Holy Spirit to be present with us to fill our hearts and fill us with a desire to serve one another as well as the broader community. That we would, like Paul admonished Titus with the uh, Cretans, to focus on good works. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.